Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Robert Mack. He's an Ivy League educated positive psychology expert, celebrity happiness coach, executive coach, and published author, and recently released the book, Love from the Inside Out, Lessons and Inspiration for Loving Yourself, Your Life, and Each Other. We dove deep into his background on applied positive psychology, the influences of experts like Byron Katie, as well as Martin Seligman, who is the founder of Positive Psychology. We spoke at length about happiness, potentiality of partners, the impact of adversity and resiliency, love, and daily habits that can contribute to becoming a healthier, happier human being. This is a really special episode of Everyday Wellness. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Rob, I'm so excited to reconnect with you. It is hard to believe it has been a little over three years since I was out in LA recording with you. And now we get to connect today. It's unreal. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so grateful for you having me and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So I'm curious, when I was diving deep into your background, what was it about applied positive psychology that really resonated with you and started a, a, an additional trajectory in your career and in your mindset and your process? It was uh, happiness and it was a scientific, like empirically valid approach to happiness that really moved me. I was unhappy most of my life. I mean, it was a depressed, anxious, self-loathing child <laughs> And I always thought I would grow out of it. And uh, that didn't happen, at least not right away. I just became more anxious, stressed, and self-loathing as the years went on. And despite achieving and accomplishing and acquiring things, both personally and professionally, financially, relationally, socially, had lots of friends, beautiful girlfriend, but I just felt worse and worse. And so I eventually got to a place where I was suicidal. Um, I was experiencing suicidal ideation dozens of times a day and then did a little research, decided I was going to kill myself, decided I was going to use a writ on my knife slash my wrist. And yeah, I had a suicidal sort of experience there. In the midst of that, straight, quite unexpectedly, I felt this peace and this love and this joy at the moment I was digging a knife into my wrist that I just couldn't explain. You know, it was ineffable and inexplicable and it was unexpected. And so I postponed the suicide at that time for a little while in that period of time. At first it was just 10 minutes. You know, it wasn't a very long period of time that I had committed to postponing the suicide. But in that time, I started doing a different kind of research. I kept that up for several years, and I eventually discovered applied positive psychology, um, which was very helpful for someone like me who tends to be very analytical. Yeah, well, and what an incredible story. And I think for so many people, I fervently believe there are no such thing as coincidences. And so whether it was the universe, the spirit, whomever stepped in to have you pause and to then reflect on, you know, looking at your life differently I think from my perspective, you know, happiness can be defined in so many different ways, but really it sounds like both of us and during the course of the last two and a half years made some significant changes. And so when you're working or you're working with people and talking about happiness, one of the things that I find surprising is that I would imagine most adults 
think that happiness actually is derived from external forces. Yes. Those of us who have read X number of books know intellectually that's not true, that happiness is independent of your external conditions and circumstances. But viscerally, sort of experientially, existentially, we don't feel it that way. We don't experience it that way. It just seems like, of course, when you hit the lottery or you meet the love of your life or you have that first child or that second child acts up or whatever it is, that your happiness waxes and wanes and ebbs and flows accordingly. And so it just seems like, well, no, happiness is clearly derived from external conditions, circumstances, people, activities, and so on. But when we look at the research, we see that's clearly not true. And when we look at our personal experiences and the experience of others, we can see that's not true, that there have been times when you've been surrounded by happy conditions, and yet you felt extraordinarily unhappy. Or you've been surrounded by seemingly undesirable or unhappy conditions, and yet you're still happy, or you're still at peace, or you're still full of love. So yes, happiness is independent of the conditions and circumstances of our lives. And that's not an argument against creating the richest, healthiest, wealthiest life you can. Well, and I think for so many people, you know, having come from a part of the country where a lot of people would articulate that, you know, what they derived happiness from wasn't family, wasn't, you know, intellectual fortitude, it was from things. And, you know, there's a certain degree of toxicity that goes along with that, you know, in my humble opinion. And so it's wonderful to know that happiness the research on happiness certainly supports the fact that that can be an intrinsically derived process that you can be in less than ideal circumstances and you can you know be in a happy state i would be the first person to say you know spending 13 days in the hospital you know most of which i would not describe as a pleasant experience however when i started to have this mindset shift about what am i going to focus on instead of feeling sorry for myself because it's easy to do that I'm going to do this 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 mindset shift and now I'm going to reflect on what am I going to focus on so that when I get out of here I can make the most of the rest of my life. And for many people, I don't want to be judgmental, but I, I think for many people that per se would not have been they would have seen stuck in the pessimism and negativity whereas I know for myself the only way I was going to be able to reframe the experience was to kind of flip the dial a bit. And so when I left, I was so grateful that they figured out what was wrong with me and that I was going home. I remember thinking I've never been so happy to leave, (laughs) to go home and spend time with my family as I am right now. And I would argue that the profound appreciation and gratitude that I felt just fueled that happiness. Like every day I was like, okay, if I wasn't as happy yesterday, I'm going to be even happier today. And it's interesting that you bring that, that we bring up that we're having this discussion talking about happiness because as defined, people think of happiness in, in many different ways. But I would say that when I've been my happiest has been when life is the most simplistic. For sure. I, gosh, there's so much there to celebrate and to speak to. Certainly simplicity is um, precious. And I think it certainly does contribute to happy life. There's no question about it. I know when, and it's not just simplicity in our surroundings and our lifestyle and our choices. It's also, and mostly to a large extent, simplicity of mind, right? When you, um, often you find that when you're the happiest, you're thinking either no thoughts or very simple thoughts, right? So there's that. Something else you spoke to, you know, when you began the conversation around external circumstances, conditions, and the ways in which happiness, the kind of happiness that I talk about, that we're talking about here, true happiness is unconditional, meaning it's not contingent or conditioned um, or conditional upon what's happening or not happening in your life. 
researchers have come up with a happiness formula. And the happiness formula is H, happiness equals S, that's genetic set point, plus C, which is conditions and circumstances, plus V. So that S, genetic set point, is responsible for about 50% of how happy or unhappy you are. The C, now that eight, or that S, by the way, is perfectly malleable, which means that we can turn on and off those genes in ways that are conducive or detrimental to our happiness score rating. Um, so it's plastic, unlike eye color and unlike height, right? The C is conditions and circumstances. And that's most of what we think about when we think about happiness. We think about successful life outcomes. Am I healthy? What age am I? Am I young? Am I old? Am I educated or not? How much money do I make or not? Am I married or unmarried? Am I single? Do I have kids? So we think about that. And we would assume that most of our happiness is derived from that, but clearly it's not. Only about 10% of our happiness wow. comes from that, right? And that's at the best end. So in other words, if you imagine the most ideal life you could possibly have, unlimited money, perfect spouse, unlimited spouses, whatever it is that you're after, kids, no kids, perfect health, perfect youth, perfect beauty, all those things combined only account for about 10% of your happiness at best, 10%. The other 40% are what we call volitional. That's the V, the volitional activities. And so those are things like gratitude and optimism and self-care and exercise and social support, things like that, that we have control and influence around, a lot more control and influence around. And so what that means is that 50% genetic set point, perfectly malleable, and it's malleable based on the 40% the volitional activities, that means 90% of your happiness is totally up to you. And maybe 10% at worst is attributable to conditions and circumstances that feel or are less controllable, right? Your health in, the, in this red hot moment, the amount of money you make in this red hot moment, how many kids you do or don't have, all of that. And so science says a lot about that. The other thing I'll say real quickly is something else you spoke to, which is just really powerful, profound, which is hedonic adaptation, hedonic treadmill, which means that most everything that happens to you, I can slightly increase or slightly decrease your baseline happiness score, but your happiness returns to its baseline level almost no matter what you do or what happens to you, except for the more volitional, like lasting, meaningful, and sustainable changes that you make to your mindset, to the way in which you approach social support or relationships. So the things that you do inside the inner work actually makes a very lasting and meaningful and sustaining changed your happiness score, but practically everything else like money and kids and relationships and health have very little to no effect. In some cases, they have the opposite effect that you might expect, right? So lots to unpack there, but the idea there is that true happiness is what I would call unconditional. It's really interesting because I think, you know, when I was a younger woman and girlfriends were getting married and seemingly blissfully happy, and, you know, I was definitely one of those women. I got married a little later, met my husband in my thirties, which is totally fine. I say all the time, I, I had to, you know, wait to be patient, to meet the right person. And we've been married for 19 years. But when I think about how many people were in a rush to get married, they were in a rush to have kids, how a lot of my close friends or a few of them, I should say, most of them made really good decisions. It was interesting to see over the last two and a half years, how suddenly they had the courage to make changes that they perhaps didn't have at any other time during their relationships. And so it, that makes sense. And it's very consistent with what you're saying. But I think for many people, they think it's the next thing they have to attain. That's going to make them happy. Like when I get married, when I have kids, when I get that raise, when I have the big house, when I you know insert whatever thing it is that people are thinking that that golden ring that they're really aiming for. 
you nailed it. Success doesn't lead to happiness. Success doesn't lead to happiness. And that's especially true in relationships. Sure, when you first get married, you get a small increase or bump in your happiness score, but that bump and your happiness returns to its baseline level pretty much after the honeymoon phase, right? And so for lots of people, it goes it dips way below that. That's why you see so much divorce. That's why you see so many unhappy marriages. And so relationship is no panicky or remedy for unhappiness. We also know the same thing is true for kids. You know, so many folks for good reason, look forward to having these little bundles of joy, but the little bundles of joy tend not to be that joyful often. And it's not because you don't love them. It's just because there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of anxiety involved. You love and care about them so much that you worry about them and they're expensive. And it's a lifetime kind of thing, right? What that means is that with the first kid, you get a small dip or decrease in your happiness level. With the second kid, a significant dip or decrease happiness level and your happiness levels don't return to the you know to those kids leave the house at 18 maybe or five five these days right so that's not again an argument against having kids and for lots of people it's not true at all they experience the opposite of that which is fantastic but kids can again be very stressful and they can be very expensive and so again if you're looking for happiness investing your happiness in having kids or getting the right relationship or finding the right partner is not the best way to go about doing it. That being said, on the other end, if you can find a way to get happy first, which is, I think it's like if you can get happy without the partner and without the kids, you find that you end up getting married earlier, stay married longer and happier in all the relationships, whether you're married or not. And you're also happy with your kids because you're sourcing the happiness from within yourself, right? And so success doesn't lead to happiness, but happiness does lead to su success. And this is true, not only in relationships, but also with money. Happy people make about uh, $600,000 to $700,000 more on average over the course of their lifetime than their unhappy counterparts. They experience better health. They live six to seven years longer than their unhappy peers. They experience less job burnout. They enjoy more flow state than their unhappy um, friends and colleagues and family members. So in any case, happiness tends to lead to and facilitate success in increasingly effortless and enjoyable ways. And success doesn't lead to lasting, meaningful and abiding happiness. There's so much to unpack there. But I, I, the first thing I wanted to kind of mention, and it was part of my notes when I was pulling this together, is what contributes to people's perception that happiness is derived from external forces? Like, is that part of the movie industry? Is that part of media, you know, creating that kind of environment, you know, this false sense of environment? I mean, I feel like at perhaps our generations are definitely more attuned to paying attention to these things. Whereas I, I feel like my parents, my grandparents' generations, you got married, you stayed married. Didn't matter you're happy or sad, you stayed married forever. And even if you weren't happy, decoupled or uncoupled, you still, you know, you looked for that next relationship. But I feel like in many ways, or at least it's my perception, Young women grow up watching Cinderella and watching, you know, all these movies that give us this false sense of, oh, it's, I'm not necessarily complete until I've met that other person. And what you're really saying is, is that happiness, true happiness comes from within. The best way to attract a healthy partner is to be happy with yourself. And yet women in many ways are conditioned to believe that we are not whole until we are coupled. Absolutely. And the equivalent for often for many men is that they're not whole unless they provide or can provide or make a lot of money or are successful or right. And so you're right. And so there's both nature and nurture, right? So we can blame both nature and nurture. It's the hardware and the software, which means that we're born with some of these, I call them biases. They were extraordinarily adaptive tendencies 
proclivities, inclinations. In the beginning, sure. I mean, it's good to get a dopamine hit. You know, it's really It's good to get a dopamine hit when, you know, you meet a partner and you have kids and that the kids survive to pass on your genetic code. And then, you know, we continue to like keep the human race moving forward, or at least, you know, the numbers up high enough kind of thing. So it's sort of nature reasons, but there's also the nurture, which is that, you know, as a result of that, sometimes we overvalue or overestimate that dopamine hit on one hand, and we tend to continue to do what it seems like we're rewarded for. So it's like, if you get a dopamine hit, Every time you make a little more money or you can build a better house or you can get a better partner, you're going to probably continue to do those things. And so the challenge with that, of course, is that underneath and in between and prior to and after the dopamine hit, you're feeling mostly anxiety and stress and worry and concern, particularly with the introduction of the prefrontal cortex. You know, when that came you know, to be in the human brain, then the ability for discursive thinking and abstract thought began to ruin and poison even the most blissful moment. I mean, the very moment you achieve, accomplish, acquire something is also the moment you worry about keeping it. You know, as the Buddha said, unhappiness comes sort of in, you know, multiple flavors and really mainly two, which is um, not getting what you want. Okay. But also getting what you want, right? You get what you want and you start to worry about it right away. And so you got that. And then on top of that, so when you've got then folks that understand all this and maybe they're not that self-aware or not that evolved, then they begin to sell you a bad bill of goods in order for you to encourage you to buy their products or services. I mean, and there's, you know, there's something really magical and wonderful about a Disney movie. There's something really magical and wonderful about a new beauty product and, or whatever. And so, and it's easier to sell those products if you inherently or intrinsically believe that you need it in order to be lovable or loved or happy. Right. So you've got availability entrepreneurs. That's what we might call those folks that sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously aren't work at that. You've got nature, you've got nurture, but it's all quite easily solvable by just going within. Although I know that sounds like a cliche um, to so many of us, but it's by discovering, rediscovering the source of infinite eternal happiness that you can then find yourself still enjoying life and enjoying life in greater, richer, more stress-free ways and accomplishing what you want much more easily and effectively and quickly, you do have to rediscover that source of happiness within. Do you think there's different types of love? Like I'm not just talking about platonic versus romantic, but you talk about false love or pseudo love. And what exactly is that? Like, I think it's interesting, you know, you talk about oxytocin and you talk about dopamine and and how these influence behavior influences brain chemistry. Sometimes we're feeling like, oh, we're very coupled. But sometimes when we think we're in love with someone, it's just mirroring what we think we or perceive we want or need. So, wow, beautiful, beautifully stated. Yeah, we often make the mistake. When I say we, I mean me, just as much as anyone else out there, but a poster board for all this stuff. So we often think we've fallen in love with a person, but we've actually fallen in love with our own thoughts or ideas of that person. So there's that. We often fall in love with our own stories about people and things and activities. And then we call that love, but that's not really love. We also sometimes call, and love goes by lots of wrong names, right? Love gets a bad name, kind of like the song. So sometimes it's like lust we mistake for love and entertainment and distraction and ego gratification we mistake for love. Love is happy. And if it's not happy, it's not love. First, love is free. And if it's not free, it's not love. Love is mostly an experience of giving. And that doesn't mean you don't get. And it's not a giving to get. It's a giving that happens authentically without an expectation of reciprocity that happens organically and seamlessly 
when you simply are love. And so another way that I put it a cleaner way, I think is that love is really happiness. When you're all alone and you're happy, we call it happiness. When you're happy, but you're together out there in the world, mixing it up with other people, I call it love. But so when you're introverted and happy, we call it happiness. When you're extroverted in that moment, we call it love. But love is just your happiness shared. It's just your bliss shared. It's just your joy shared. So the metaphor I like to use is of a rain cloud, you know, and I want to be a rain cloud. I want everyone to be a rain cloud. A rain cloud sort of fills itself up with so much peace, love, and joy or self-love that it gets to a place where it can't contain that peace, love, self-love, and joy any longer. It's just ready to burst. And so at some point, because it can't help it, it just burst. And in the bursting, it's not doing something moral or ethical, something it should do. It's not trying to love the earth and everyone and everything on the earth. It's just unburdening itself. It's relieving itself of all this peace, love, happiness, bliss, and pleasure that's found within itself. And it does it organically and seamlessly and effortlessly, enjoyably. And it does it without an expectation of reward or reciprocity. And it, so it showers all of that peace, love, joy down upon the earth and all sentient beings. And that's love. That's love, right? So the key and the challenge and the opportunity with love is to be so full of happiness that you get it on everybody and everything, no matter what you do. And you don't get, it's not like you get it on them or give it to them because you're trying to even help them. It's not, that's just a side effect that they're benefited from it. It's just that you're contagious with happiness. You know, you're just positively infectious with happiness. So I think the more I've thought along those lines and the more I've thought along that and use that metaphor, the clearer it is for me. Yeah, most of what we mistake for love is just pleasure or ego gratification. And love can include those things, but it doesn't equate to those things. Well, and I think a lot of people in a lot of the mirroring about love and relationships we get from our parents. And so I'm always the first person to say that, you know, God didn't give me the parents I wanted. I got the parents I needed because it demonstrated for me how I needed to show up differently with my children. And so I view my parents with compassion and love but I acknowledge that things would be very different with my kids. In fact, I went through a period of time thinking I may not ever get married or have children. And so that makes me laugh when I think about that now. But what I think is of interest is that, you know, our first formation of relationships and communication is with our families and families can take many different, you know, varieties and it's up to us to do the work so that we fine tune what we've, we've been in, I don't want to use the word embedded, ingrained with, imprinted with, maybe that's a better term, as we go about and navigate being out in the world and figuring out like what works and what serves us and what does not. I always say, I take a couple things, really good things my parents gave me and I keep those and then I fine tune the rest. But you know, nowadays, because of the onslaught of social media and access to information, what are some of the challenges that you perceive about people navigating the world, trying to identify what love represents for them. Because I'm sure there's some degree of bio-individuality, meaning each one of us might need something tweaked a little differently to make sure that we're in a position where we are loving and we can also take in love. Yeah. Wow. Deep question. First, I'll just say, in order to reflect back the wisdom that we shared earlier there, Byron Katie says, Parents are responsible for all the problems. Kids are responsible for all the solutions. I've always loved that because it doesn't matter who I meet or connect with in my private practice or real life. Everyone seems to have a real complaint about their parents, no matter how perfect their parents were. And that's a good thing because it means that your parents have done a 
perfectly phenomenal job, no matter who your parents are, what they did or did not do, in serving as teachers for unconditional self-love, you know, and unconditional happiness and unconditional peace. In other words, they're like personal trainers for all those things. If they met every one of your needs and desires and they showed you perfect love, which is impossible for as a human being, you would be led away from and trained away from the very source of peace, love, self-love, and happiness that exists within you. And so they do you a much greater disservice and much greater injustice if they would have been the way you wanted them to be. It's much better that they're not the way that you want them to be so that you can be what you want to be and you can find this infinite eternal source that exists within you. So that's the first thing I'll say. You know, the other point you're making here and the question you asked is, is fantastic, which is I think all relationship problems can ultimately be reduced to a question of when you say love, when you say I love you, what do you mean by it? We just have all of the, we make all of these assumptions. We're unaware, we're unconscious of all these assumptions we make about love. And we have thousands, at least dozens or hundreds of assumptions and flawed premises built into what we mean when we say or tell someone we love them. And everyone's a little different that way. That's where we're really different. It's like, when I say I love you, I mean, I give you freedom to be and do and have anything you want. I've realized that is not the way that other people think about love. (laughs) They think of sometimes just the opposite that, no, you are not free any longer. You belong to me. And now these are the conditions under which you, you know, we will enjoy this loving or lovable or love experience. So I'd say answering that question can be extraordinarily helpful. Like really get down to the nitty gritty. Like when do I, and do I not feel loved or lovable? So that's one way to think about it. Ultimately, at the end of the day, though, I think that the challenge and opportunity is to kind of clear the lens entirely. When you see with and through a really clear lens, blemishless lens, you see that you're surrounded by love everywhere, that everything is just love with a different name and a face on it. And sometimes love looks like a poorly wrapped gift. And sometimes love looks like a perfectly wrapped gift. But even the experiences that we, that are not what you want them to be, remind you of what you want to be. You know, when people are terribly, and they are, and the world is a terribly unreliable place to find peace, love, and happiness, you're reminded that the only reliable place to find peace, love, and happiness is within yourself. And so that's the beautiful thing about it. At the end of the day, the work ultimately remains the same for all of us. It may come in 32 flavors like Baskin Robbins, but at the end of the day, it's really only our thoughts about love and our stories about love that get in the way of our experience of love here and now. That makes so much sense. And yet I think it's like the age old question of, you know, how do I find a partner? How do I select a partner? And sometimes we make it about the other person and not ourselves. And I I think it's something that perhaps with a lot of good therapy, probably in my twenties, I had figured out I'm a huge proponent of therapy, Reiki work, energy work. I think it's all very important because I fervently believe that a self-evolved human someone that's done the work. And you can tell, I almost feel like the people I am closest to right now in my life and in my business are the people that have done the work and are exactly manifesting the types of relationships and friendships that they want to have. And so, you know, being in alignment in that regard is pretty powerful. But back to my, the direction my question was going in is, you know, the potentiality of partners when people are asking, is this the right person for me? Really, it should be, really reflecting and making it more about you are in the best position possible and are they at the same level and mindset that you are at so that you can have this powerful 
maybe powerful is not the right word, mutually beneficial, enjoyable, loving exchange of time together. But I agree with you that a lot of times the definition of love and definition of partnership is more about possession. It's more about, you know, having someone that goes along with whatever you want to do. It's much more selfish and self-serving. Nailed it. It's one of the other flawed false premises or assumptions we make around love, which is that love is two minds or two people with minds who are always in agreement. It's not the case at all. The person agrees with you all the time about everything. How fun is that? And what are you going to learn? You know, and how can you possibly broaden your perspective or your perception and experience and enjoy more of life and more of yourself and more of the other if you are always just activating this confirmation bias, right? Over and over again. So it's good to bump up against people that don't agree with you. Now, the challenge, of course, is can I learn to disagree without being disagreeable? I can simply say, oh, that's interesting. I see it a different way. Tell me more. Oh, you see it that way? That's interesting, huh? And then you can, at the end of the day, say, because you're committed to love above all else, meaning feeling, and I mean that selfishly, feeling love. Like I'm so selfish. I want to feel love as consistently as humanly possible. And I don't want to outsource it or delegate to anyone else because it's not their job. Neither is it their pleasure or privilege. If I don't feel loved, I need to address that within me. And doesn't mean I can't also have a conversation and say, you know, I'd prefer you not punch me every time I see you, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Right. So I would say, you know, you're absolutely right that love isn't two minds that are always in agreement. It's two hearts that intend or set an intention to always be in alignment with each other. Right. And that really is about just being aligned with yourself. You know, and so, yeah, I think that it's easy to get sort of distracted by lots of ways of looking or seeking love, looking for or seeking love. And one of those ways is looking or seeking for a partner that's going to make your life right or make you feel loved or make you feel lovable. And that's always a trap. Even asking the question sometimes, although it's a valid and understandable, perfectly human question, which is like, is this person right for you? I mean, the truth is, um, on one hand, nobody's right for you. The only person right for you is you. Okay. Second of all, everybody's right for you in this red hot moment right here. Now, whatever it is that is happening and showing up for you is precisely what you need at this point in time to dive deeper into yourself or into what you want in a party, even, even if you just look at it as the daily gathering experience. So everybody is right in that sense, because they're helping you clarify what you most want and or need. And then the, the greater question I'd say is, you know, are you in alignment with you? You know, and the more in alignment you are with you, the more at peace you are with yourself, the less lonely you feel like when you're alone, the more you can enjoy your own company and the happier you can be when you're left alone with nothing to entertain you, but your own thoughts and your own company, the more easily and effortlessly you'll find yourself attracting with and connecting with people who increasingly seem like the right person for you, right? So the happier you are without a partner, the happier partners you tend to attract and you tend to keep around, right? So I'd say, you know, if there was a master key, a cheat code, to healthy, happy relationships. It's being healthy and happy yourself and sort of making everybody else a little less relevant in that equation and letting whoever shows up, show up. And that doesn't mean you can't, that you shouldn't step outside your house and go meet people or get on the dating apps. It's fine, but make sure you're enjoying it as much as you possibly can and make sure you're trying to stay as healthy and happy on the inside as you can and not blame or give credit to other people for making you feel happy or unhappy. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you know, when I reflect back, I think college was like this great social experiment where you know, you could date different people and you could decide whether or not, you know, that you were in alignment or you were in agreement with what type of relationship you wanted to have. But that great social experimentation experiment at that time in our lives, we never really get that degree of 
exposure all at once with people that are in a, you know, everyone leaves their homes and goes to a university or a college and they're exposed to so many different people all at once. I like this. I don't like that. This is aligned with what I want to be like. This is not, but it's interesting. I feel like once you leave the nest of college or university, if that's where your, your life takes you, it gets much more complicated. You're not on that level playing field where everyone's coming together with kind of this new shared experience. And how do people navigate that successfully? Because I, when I reflect back on my 20s, I remember thinking college was kind of this blissful experience and you're in this warm cocoon. And then reality hits when you have to go to work for a paycheck to pay your rent and your car payment, whatever else you're paying for. Very different than when you're in this warm cocoon of parents supporting you and you know, being in a very kind of like-minded environment with your peers. You nailed it. Youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I remember hearing that quote expression before. And uh, as stressful and as anxiety-producing and provoking as my college experience was, I do look back on it very fondly because it was a little utopian bubble in lots of ways. And it was a great day-to-gather experience socially. You know, we talked about this even before got on the air here. And people do struggle a lot with that, you know. And so many of us miss and um, reflect back on and are kind of nostalgic about that college experience for precisely the reasons you just described. You know, I'd say that one of the best things you can do is find your little community, your little tribe. It's not always easy. Um, but if you can find things that you discover things, rediscover things that you intrinsically enjoy and spend more time doing those things for their own sake, you'll find that you're in the company of people who you can more easily and effortlessly and enjoyably connect with. And that kind of sometimes develops into other things. Second is letting go of your expectations around everything. You know, it's easy because we can all be so stressed out or so busy that we fall ourselves, find ourselves slipping into using these mental heuristics. So these shortcuts where we put people in boxes very quickly and it's understandable and it's perfectly human, uh, but it's not particularly productive or profitable for your personal or your professional life or relationships. So you want to let go of that and you want to try to enjoy people for their own sake. That mostly means just being as present as possible and focus on enjoying people. If you can just focus on enjoying people, no matter who it is, that small child, a cashier, you know, a clerk, whoever happens to be in front of you at the time, just try to enjoy that more and more. You can do that best by either leaning in to what I'll call the truthful, better feeling story about what's happening. Okay. So we can talk about that as positive or constructive thinking. I prefer even more. So it's not a snow job. Okay. It's authentic and, or not thinking at all. So it's like, keep your mind where your body is. And if you can't be positive, be quiet while your body is where it is. That is just incredibly powerful. You know, you don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to get them to like you. You don't have to like that. Just for a moment, just experience them for who and what they are and try to enjoy it. And you'd be surprised. So, and sometimes the person you think is going to be a relationship turns out to be a professional you know, relationship. And sometimes the person you think is going to be a professional relationship turns out to be a romantic one or, or both. Um, but it's important to sort of let go of your expectations, lean into what you intrinsically love, find communities and folks of people, you know, people that are doing those things, do it for their own sake. And of course, most importantly, prioritize your own happiness above all else. I love that. And I love that, you know, as you were saying all that, I was thinking staying unattached to outcome because how many of us are trying to define relationships up front, you know, don't put them in that box of this is someone I would never have a relationship with or never be friends with. I do find the being present, especially two and a half years into the pandemic is something that I actively work out because I think for many years with younger kids, now they're teenagers, 
it was just, you know, trying to be present was hard because there were 15 things that had to get done. Whereas now the simplicity of our lives in our new town, our new city is that we enjoy very simple things and we really savor it. Like taking a dog outside in 40 degrees, it was 20 degrees this morning. What am I saying? 20 degree weather with the dog, sunlight on her face, an ungodly temperature, probably for someone that's in Florida, the state of Florida, but just enjoying the sun on my face and understanding physiologically what's that's doing in my body and being present in the moment. I didn't have earbuds in. I wasn't listening to a podcast. My husband wasn't with me. It's just the two dogs and I taking, you know, this couple mile walk this morning, very simple things. And I, I think for a lot of people not being present in their bodies, not being present day to day, they're just going through the motions, how incredibly challenging it would be to be in a state of love and happiness if you're just going through the motions. And do you find that uh, during the past two and a half years, you're seeing people that are one extreme or the other people that are either finding themselves, meaning they're, they've rediscovered passions or things that they used to enjoy, or they've disconnected with themselves even more. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that. So a study, and we have, of course, increasing income gap, but also even more so an increase of increasing subjective well-being gap, right? And I think a lot of that is attributable to, among other things, presence, right? Um, and of course, in miracles, they say, we accomplish so little because of undisciplined minds. And that's often what it comes down to. Presence is a practice. Um, it can be a very enjoyable and should be a very enjoyable practice. It's not something you do because you should do it. Okay, sure, that's there, but should, shouldn't, who knows? Enjoyment, though, I'm all for enjoyment. And so I'm, I think, ultimately a hedonist at heart. So it's like, can you enjoy every moment more by being distracted less. You know, you can't enjoy what you're not there to enjoy, right? So some of us are too unconscious to know we're unconscious. We're too distracted to know we're distracted. It's like being too drunk to know you're drunk, right? So it's like, how can I be more present? And so presence takes on a number of forms. I mean, in the beginning, I often thought of presence as just like, I got to hear every word this other person is saying, and I need to like really pay attention to everything they're doing. It's like, sure. But also at a deeper level, for me, Presence also means keeping my part of my attention inside where there's perfect peace. So I hear most of what they're saying. I don't need to hear every single word. I just need to stay mostly attentive and aware of this place of perfect peace inside of me, right? So there's that. And you go further. Sometimes people talk about practicing the presence of God, which is a very similar practice or practicing the presence of happiness on the inside. But it mostly means staying out of your head and staying out of the past and future and just being where you are. And so I call that no mind. You can call it no thought. I also call it innocence. You can call it purity. You can call it love or self-love or happiness. You can call it God or source. It's all, they're all synonyms for just enjoying yourself, you know, self with a capital S. So yes, it is a practice. And the more you practice it, and of course, in the beginning, it's difficult, but in the end, it makes everything else easy right? And it becomes easy over time. So in about 22 to 66 days, if you can practice presence, maybe something like a micro meditation, a micro meditation is one breath that you take for its own sake. And you pretend like it's the last breath you'll ever get. So you really remind yourself like, Hey, hopefully I have a hundred years in these beautiful bodies. Maybe I have five seconds. I don't genuinely know. Let me consciously and intentionally try to enjoy this breath in through the nose and out of the nose just for joy's sake alone. Like, let me really try to juice it for as much joy as I get. If you can practice that or any other form of mindfulness, which is really mindlessness activity, but if you can practice it for 22 to 66 days, you rewire your brain to do it in an increasingly effortless and automatic way. So you don't have to work so hard at it. The power of neuroplasticity, you know, having the ability to 
rewire, you know, whatever you say, what fires together, wires together and understanding how important that is. I know for myself, one of my tricks when I'm feeling like I'm not focused enough on what I'm doing is to actually, it's not a a mini meditation, but it's, you know, I do box breathing. And so sometimes that I'll just concentrate on counting and then I can kind of reroute my brain to be like, okay, it's time to focus. It's time to not be having, thinking of 15 things at once, which women's brains are largely wired to be that way. And I would say, I want to think more like I'm the only female in my house. So I'm like, I have to think more like the men in my life who men generally are very focused on one thing at a time, the way that I'm speaking in generalities, the way that men's brains are kind of wired versus women's. I'm like, I can't be in that mindset. It's not going to allow me to be productive. So when you're, you're being, you know, calm and present in that moment, what happens when you get triggered? Like maybe you're talking to someone and maybe it's not your favorite person in the world, but you're making the best of that moment and space and time and and trying to be pleasant and happy where you are. What do you do when you get triggered? Do you feel like getting triggered is demonstrating to you that you have work to do in a particular space? What does that represent for you? Yeah. I try not to let it represent anything. We're meeting making machines. You know, it's interesting because all of nature is perfectly blissful except for human beings. Only people make a problem out of their own existence, right? Only we have made life problematic, you know? And that's despite the fact that all of nature, not just human nature, all of nature experiences the same things we experience as humans, right? Loss, accident, misfortune, violence, illness, death, and yet mostly no problem. I mean, the more domesticated the animals are, the more they tend to take on cognitive behavioral patterns of people, if you've noticed, right? They get depressed and this. So we're meaning making machines, you know? And so we're storytelling machines. And so the less storytelling I can do around any particular event and what it means, the better off I am. Particularly if I can't, you know, in the beginning, I would mostly focus on reframing it constructively and positively. Like this person is coming at me out of nowhere, out of the thin air, and they're attacking me they're insulting me. They're offending me. And then I would use it and say, well, I asked above all else to learn unconditional happiness and peace and love. And so they are personal trainers for my soul in that particular way at this particular moment. So I should feel some level of gratitude, even if it's, you know, silent and, uh, and on the part it's unconscious, um, you know, the behavior. So there was that, but then over time I started to say, well, I love that. And that feels good. Though it takes a lot of work and I couldn't do it right away. I would distract myself right away. Distracting distraction is highly useful defense mechanisms. Distract yourself for a while, especially if you're feeling really negative or really triggered, just distract yourself for a while. Your mood will begin to rise again on its own. And then you're in a much better place to constructively and intelligently look at or address if necessary, the trigger and uh, whoever it was that offended you or insulted you or whatever. You can you know, draw up, create boundaries and set expectations, do all that kind of good stuff. I can even do some of the cognitive reframing that's necessary to heal from it all. But then that even felt like a ton of work. I'm like, oh, I'm lazy. I'm ultimately a very lazy person, right? So, and I noticed that even when I did that, I'd still often feel a low level stress and anxiety underneath all of that. And so for me, generally, and I'd say most simply, I just like being at peace. So I find that if I practice that all day, I'm triggered a lot less. And sometimes you find yourself not triggered at all for long periods of time. And then if you do find yourself triggered, the first place you go is inside to that place where there's perfect peace. And so the res- it's less sticky, you know, and then I don't try and do a whole lot of like figuring it out. It's like, you know, to argue with unconsciousness is unconsciousness, right? To fight with a drunk person kind of makes you look drunk. So for me, I'm just better off going to that place where there are no problems, 
and there is no healing necessary because there is no sickness at all, right? So, and that doesn't mean everyone should do that. Like everyone has to find out what works for them. I'd say in the beginning, you're better off if you're highly stressed out, seek safety. And so seek that safety in your own room, in your own space, go to the bathroom, go to the clean store, wherever you got to go. And sometimes that's, at some point you realize that safe place, um, not physically, but certainly psychologically, emotionally is inside of you. So then you go to the body instead of the brain. The challenge with being triggered or feeling anything that's undesirable or un uncomfortable is that most of us go to the brain for explanations instead of the body for the experience. So we don't actually experience the trigger as much as we experience our own thoughts about the trigger. And that's where the problem comes in. So then instead of extinguishing whatever it is that's inside of us that's unhealed or unresolved, we feed and fuel in the name of processing whatever unhealed stuff we have in there. So we feed and fuel it. And then it lasts longer and it's stickier. And then we talk about our friends and we join chat groups and we go online and we share on Instagram. And then we go to the therapist and they talk about it. It's like, that's great. A lot of it, some of it, mostly not though, right? So instead, if you can go to the body, we call that somatic experiencing. Sometimes it's called somatic therapy. You go to the experience in the body instead of the explanation in the brain. And you let your mind do what's, what it's doing, but you put your focus and attention on that place in the body where you feel the discomfort. And you sit with it and you experience it. And you just take it. You just take it like a woman. You take it like a man, meaning that you just experience it for its own sake without trying to explain it. You focus more on the textures. What is it? If it was a texture, what texture would it be? If it was a color, what color? What temperature is it? Right? And then you do that for a little while. That's called processing. And then you find, might find a place in your body where that feels safe for you. you. Go to your hand, somewhere that feels open and spacious, your hands, your feet. So that's one way. And I know that was for me, it was an interim step to getting to a place now where I'm like, oh, even that feels like too much work. I'd rather just go inside of that place where there are no problems. What a beautiful way of reframing, rethinking, reprocessing, getting triggered. Because I, I always say, like, I think I'm in a largely 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm in a very good headspace. I, you know, process things, but I am very analytical. So when I get triggered, my first reaction is, what is it about that circumstance, what someone said, that person that triggered me? Like, what have I not worked on? So the next time that happens, I'm going to think about it and process it completely differently. And I, I would imagine most listeners will hear that and they're like, wow, that's I've never heard that explanation before. And it's not ignoring it. It's just the way that your brain is processing the information. It's acknowledging it but you're not perseverating over it. You're not taking a week out of your life to process that triggering event. Oh, Cynthia, you're so um, beautiful and brilliant in the way that you say and share things. And I just feel such resonance with that. That's, that's precisely it. It's so easy to go to the brain and go to a discursive thought or analytical thought. It's a, almost a knee-jerk reaction. You barely even notice that you're doing it, mostly. You don't notice you're doing it until you just continue to spiral as a result. It's only by emotion and feeling that you even realize half the time that you're lost in this dark rabbit hole of over-analytical thinking. Um, and the challenge is, is that when you're in a low mood, and Barbara Fredrickson is a, one of the researchers that's been famous for you know talking about the broaden and build hypothesis, which is this idea that when you're in a low mood, you're at your creative worst. Okay? You're at your problem-solving worst. When you're in high mood, or at least a neutral mood, you're in a much better, more creative place to solve problems, including this problem of the idiot who just triggered you or offended you, cut you off in traffic <laughs> or suing you, right? Like much better place. And you're not going to be very creative and you're not going to be very resourceful when you're in a low mood. And that's when 
it, but it's so seductive and it's so tempting to try and solve your problems, including the triggering moment, or have important conversations when you're in a low mood, but it's the worst time to do it. Instead, you want to find a way to get back to center, to find or catch your breath again. It could, it could, it could be any number of things. It could be exercise, take a nap, get a massage, go cry in the corner for a while, whatever it is that ideally lets you get back into your body a little, it's going to help you. It's going to allow for your mood to rise. And then when the mood rises, you'll notice a couple of things. Either the problem will begin or seem to solve itself. So the insights and revelations you need will come to the surface without so much energy or effort. You're just like, oh, wow, that's interesting. That person was just in a bad mood. Maybe they were in a rush to the hospital. Maybe they just lost someone. Maybe they're projecting. I mean, 99% of relationships are often projection, I'd say, right? So suddenly all these things occur to you that would have never occurred to you in your low mood because you're in a low mood. You're mostly in a fight or fight or freeze place where all you're wanting to do is confirm your biases. So you just strengthen the very biases that are causing you maybe to misinterpret the experience, certainly not heal from it, and that at worst, even facilitate the experiences, right? So that's what behavioral confirmation is. That's what confirmation biases. That's what self-fulfilling prophecies are. It's like, I have a thought about something that makes me feel a way about something. And I'm doing all these things consciously or unconsciously, mostly unconsciously, that actually solicit from other people the very behaviors or words or experiences that I'm having. We don't realize that we're co-creative partners in these experiences. So anyway, you're better off waiting until your mood rises to then do a deep dive, even therapeutically uh, or cathartically or trying to problem solve or have important conversations. No, that makes so much sense. And you've done such a beautiful job articulating that. So I got questions about adversity and resiliency. And I, I think that the last two and a half years have taught a lot of us that we're more resilient than we probably realized we were. And so, you know, for me, my process of being in the hospital, getting out of the hospital and the trajectory of what changed in 2019, I always say through adversity comes opportunity. That's kind of something I feel fervently about. But another component of that process was the concept of surrender. And I know you talk about surrender and what that represents in your work. And so I would love to kind of tie that into the conversation because I think there are many people listening that have gone through tough times or they're going through tough times. And how do we find the way, probably the word reframe is not the right way to state it, but how do we look at that or how do we observe that and create the proper mindset to be able to move forward? So- I hated the word surrender. It always sounded so defeatist. You know, I was raised by a father who's a disciplinarian. He was in the military. You know, we would salute him in the morning, like, yes, sir. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, all right. And um, bounce quarters off the bed to make sure the bed was, you know, made just right. And so I surrender to me was like, what? I'm never surrendering. I'll die before I surrender. And so it sounded so defeatist to me. And I've come to see um, through that misconception, misperception. Uh, so surrender is not that. In, in fact, surrender is one of the greatest strengths. You'll find your greatest strength in surrender. We're mostly wanting to surrender is the struggle and the stress and the strife and the upset and the overwhelm and the unhappiness and the self-loathing. We're wanting to surrender all the stuff you don't want and never wanted in the first place is what we're really surrendering. We're surrendering all of that. Um, we're surrendering even what this diagnosis means, right? We're 
Who knows what the future means? We're surrounding the labels. We're surrounding the concepts around all that. Don't know what any of that means. I know what the experience is that's happening in my body. I know what that is. And I don't even know what it means. I just know what I feel. So we're surrendering all the meaning making, all the storytelling. We're surrendering the past because it is past after all. We're surrendering the future. It is fantasy after all, right? So the past is history and memory. The future is projection and fantasy. We're surrendering all of that. That's just mind stuff. And what we're left with is just an experience. Maybe it's a thought. Maybe it's a feeling. Maybe it's a perception. That's it. So we're surrendering everything that we can't ultimately control, that you never had control of, that you only had an illusion of control of, right? So sometimes I think we are stardust, literally, right? Mostly made of stardust in these rotting corpses on this floating like rock that's hanging on nothing, spinning on its axis in a very wobbly fashion. What revolves around a super hot star that we call sun has been doing so forever, okay? At just a distance that doesn't freeze us or burn us. Most of our lives are surrendered already. We don't realize it. Surrender also, we can call trust or we can call faith. It's the same thing. But tra- trust and faith sometimes have, particularly faith, sometimes has too much belief in it. It's like we have to effort so hard. But if you think about it, you fall asleep every night for eight hours and you are surrendered. You are surrendered to whatever happens the next eight hours. You know, your doors might be locked, but you're as, as vulnerable as you get. And yet you're surrendered to it. And every day, for the most part, sure, there are exceptions, horrible exceptions, but we wake up just fine right? Um, and better off and rested and refreshed. So surrender is incredibly important. If you want to be happy, if you want to find peace, if you want to find love, if you want to find self-love, if you want to be successful, because there's a lazier, intelligent way to do everything and anything you're doing. I promise you, whatever it is you're doing and everything that you're doing, you can do in a much lazier, more efficient, effective, and efficacious way in a much more intelligent, wiser way, if you can learn surrender. Uh, but yeah, it's incredibly important. It really is. Well, Rob, I could talk to you for hours. I really enjoyed your book. I'm going to highly recommend that uh, my listeners check it out. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you on social media, how to connect with you if they want to work with you and any current projects you're working on. Um, First of all, thank you so much, Cynthia. You're such a bright light. I feel emotional saying it. You're so Mm -hmm. gifted at what you do, which is connect with people in authentic ways and you're so deeply, your expertise is just profound. It's like, just when I bring up a study, you got 10 more and then it's like amazing. So I love that and I love and appreciate you. Um, So thank you for having me on. So folks can find me at my website at coachrobmack.com. You can find me on most all social media platforms uh, under the same profile name, which is Rob Mac Official. I'm probably most consistently on Instagram. And you can find both uh, my published books, Love from the Inside Out, and happiness from the inside out everywhere great books are sold, including Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Costco, all the places. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to recording with you again. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 